Hello and welcome to Spectator TV, the week in 60 minutes. I am your host this week, Katie Balls. On the show. Electricity bills are going up. Royal Mail is going on strike. Airports at a standstill. And now we're out of water. Hosepipe bans affecting tens of millions of Brits are coming into force. Why isn't water working? I'll speak to James Osyph and Elizabeth Brawl. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss clashed this week over what support to offer when energy bills go up again in October. What are Sunak and Truss's fellow Conservatives making of the contest so far? I'll speak to Patrick O'Flynn and Isabel Oakeshott. Donald Trump's Florida residence, Mar-a-Lago, was raided this week by FBI agents looking for documents he apparently kept from his time as president. Joe Biden, meanwhile, this week struggled to get his jacket on. Freddie Gray and Matt Perth will be on to explain why the US is beginning to resemble a banana republic. And to finish, Christopher Howes writes in this week's magazine about the joy of a newspaper's letters pages. He'll be on the show to explain. A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And why not subscribe to our YouTube channel? Click the red subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. After an energy crisis, train strikes and chaos at our airports, we now have water shortages. Ross Clark writes in the Spectator's cover piece this week about who is to blame for our water woes. To discuss, I'm joined now by James Versaif, the Spectator's political editor, and Elizabeth Broad, expert in resilience from the American Enterprise Institute. Elizabeth, just to kick us off, uh, Ross Clark highlights the problem the UK is currently facing when it comes to water supply. How has the infrastructure got so bad? Well, I hate to say it, but uh, privatisation has a lot to do with it. As he says in the piece, uh, Britain's infrastructure used to be uh, government-owned, then it was privatised, and today uh, it's owned by a a host of of different uh, owners, including, by the way, the Chinese government. Now, in itself, there's no problem with that, but I think the the problem starts when when the owners don't uh, have the the long-term... Uh, sustainability of that infrastructure um, in mind, or at least it's not the focus of their attention. And so uh, what he highlights in the piece, for example, is uh, enormous leakage, which uh, may come as a surprise since we're all uh, always asked to, to conserve water. Well, while we conserve water, a lot of it leaks simply because the infrastructure hasn't been uh, adequately or isn't being adequately maintained. So uh, that's, it, it is really not something that can be fixed um, in, in any sort of a, a rapid turnaround, but it's something to bear in mind because it's, we, we will have more dry spells, we will have more times when, when consumers, uh, you and I and, and everybody else, will be asked to consume water and yet the, the, the fundamental problem seems to be somewhere else. And James, already we're hearing talk of nationalisation, figures saying that this is a solution. Um, Is it as simple that privatisation versus nationalisation when we're looking at the problems uh, that we're currently grappling with? No, I I mean, there is a better way of doing this, which is that you you keep these utilities privatised, but you require them to invest every year a certain amount in the infrastructure. I think what is is, uh, indefensible is the current situation 
where you had these companies paying out big dividends to their shareholders, large executive pay packages, and under-investing in infrastructure, which is one of the reasons why we're in a situation where you're going to have a host pipe ban in so much of a country in the, in the coming days. I also think it's indicative of something that Elizabeth was written about a lot, which is we do not place sufficient value in this country on resilience. Um, you've seen that in the decision in 2017 to close the gas storage site at Rough, which is clearly a mistake given the winter that we're heading for. And I think we need to think as a country much more about resilience uh, and how much spare capacity we have for shocks, whether that be droughts or uh, potential interruptions to the gas supply this winter. Elizabeth, what would a resilient water industry look like? Uh, how do you get to the point that looking at all the challenges? Because yes, there is a drought right now um, and that is creating this situation. But ultimately, uh, the water companies are saying we'd have to change things longer term. Yeah, so the, the challenge, I think, is so both when it comes to, to a crisis caused by Mother Nature, uh, as, as droughts obviously are, and crisis caused by, by hostile states, uh, which is what Germany, for example, is experiencing with, with their uh, energy supplies. That the problem, I think, uh, well, one big problem is that we as consumers expect complete uh, convenience at all time. We, we, um, we want uh, no disruption in our energy supplies. We want no disruption in our water supplies. And if you are a hostile state, that's something that you can exploit. That's exactly what, what Putin is doing with Germany. He's constantly threatening to uh, reduce gas uh, supplies even more. And, and Germany's, Germans wor worry and fret about how they're going to deal with that. And, and it's causing domestic uh, discord and, and, um, and conflict. Uh, and at the same time, we know that we'll have more uh, crises caused by Mother Nature uh, as a result of, of climate change will have more uh, long drought periods, will also have more flooding. So all of that means that there will be disruption. And if we as, as the public constantly expect total convenience, then that is, is something that is bound to lead to uh, lead to, to conflicts within our societies if we instead change our mindset. And that starts with, with those in charge and ends with, with every uh, single citizen. If we instead change our mindset and say, well, there will be disruptions, but we will be, uh, we will be able to handle it because we are prepared, just like uh, drought areas in, in, in various parts of the US know that the drought will come and they are prepared for it. I think then we are, we are as, as James said, we need to aim for resilience. And if we change our expectation uh, to one where we will uh, accept uh, disruptions every now and then, we, were, we are much better equipped to deal with them when they happen. Now, James, of course, this isn't going to happen overnight, but what do you think are the potential steps uh, the UK can look at now? Um, so, for example, there was once talk of a, a national water grid that hasn't come to much. You can look at uh, you know, some countries in the Middle East with their programs when it comes to taking seawater. Um, what kind of radical things should the UK be considering? So I, I think one thing the UK should definitely be working towards is uh, a new set of regulations that require the water companies to uh, reinvest a very large percentage of their profits in upgrading infrastructure until the infrastructure is sufficient to meet the, the new levels of demand. Uh, I think it is also worth looking at uh, greater use of desalination, for example, so you can take seawater and use it. 
And then I think we also have to consider this in the mix, because obviously, uh, if we are going to move towards more nuclear power, which is one way to try and make yourselves uh, more energy independent, less dependent on, 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 on imports of gas and the like, then that is going to require us having greater levels of, of water supplies as well, because water is so important uh, as a coolant there. And so I think we, we, need, we need a kind of coordinated national infrastructure plan. But we also need to be much clearer with these water companies, which have a guaranteed customer base that, you know, and, and they, they are essentially licenses to print money, uh, that we expect them to invest the bulk of their profits in infrastructure to ensure that there is a reliable water supply for their customers. And, and just finally, Elizabeth, right now, one of the reasons I think there is some unhappiness uh, amongst the public about the situation is that it seems the water companies have failed to invest. It's the reasons both yourself and James have laid out. Yet yeah, it's being put on the consumer, whether it is, you know, rat on your neighbours for using a hose pipe and flouting the ban or spend an hour less in the shower and that's how we're going to solve things. Do you think that there is a way around which doesn't, you know, when it comes to fixing this in the long term, which doesn't involve us adjusting our own water use? Well, as, as James said, there, uh, it would make uh, complete sense to, to put uh, a, a set of requirements uh, to the companies wanting to run uh, any sort of infrastructure, not just water, but, but other forms of infrastructure as well, including rail, including uh, airports, what have you. Um, and, uh, and the UK has a, a fantastic set of regulators who would be able to follow up to make sure those those requirements are being met. Uh, but on top of that, if, if we were to have um, companies that then met those requirements, the public would be more inclined to do its part. It, 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 if, if we have a situation like we have now, where you and I are being asked to save every drop of water, take shorter showers, while water is leaking out the pipes because they haven't been maintained, then the public will lose trust, not just in that company, but in the government. And, and that, that leads to social uh, corrosion of a very dangerous kind. Uh, but on the other hand, if, if we, the public, know that the companies are being uh, held to, to uh, the requirements that they have signed on to in, in taking over the, or in uh, acquiring uh, companies or investing in them, then I think every single person would be or at least most of us, who would be willing to do their part. James, we're having this discussion during a Tory leadership contest. How are the two campaigns responding to both the water shortage and more generally the strain on public resources that we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, I think actually it's been a surprise that this water issue has not featured in the, in the Tory leadership contest so far, especially when you consider how kind of controversial the water companies have, have been in British politics. Uh, but I think obviously, in part, that is because the Tory leadership contest is being dominated by this question of what is going to happen to the energy price cap. Predictions now are that it will go up again in October. Uh, in, in January, it will breach £4,000, and then it will go up again in April. And I think this move to the quarterly price cap is quite revealing because when that was initially uh, uh, announced or, or pushed for, the hope was that this would see bills come down more quickly. And I think it is a reminder of how high bills are going to stay for so long. But there is this debate. Now, you see, I think, I think you can see a, a difference between the two candidates in how they would approach this. Uh, Rishi Zunak is quite explicit uh, that he would... Um, he would, he would provide further direct targeted support to, to uh, the most vulnerable households. He was clear uh, uh, at the hustings in Darlington this week, this wouldn't be to everybody, 
but it would be particularly to low-income households and pensioners. While as is Truss is keener to emphasise that she would reverse the national insurance rise and take the green levies off bills, and she's reluctant to commit to, um, to, to, to direct support, though she's not ruling it out. She has been critical of handouts, but she's not ruling it out. Uh, now, the Sunak campaign say, well, hang on a second. It, it, what you're proposing in terms of national insurance, that has no benefit for, for pensioners because they, they don't pay it. And uh, the green levies it, it, is not going to take enough off the bill to, to, to help the most vulnerable people. Now, I suspect whoever becomes prime minister, there will have to be some kind of di- direct targeted support package. I think the, these, the rises are just simply so great, it is impossible to imagine... Uh, how you could politically hope to, to get through the autumn and the winter without doing something like that. But I think one of the big things that has changed is the fact that that solution needs to be durable in that you need to be able to do it again in January and April, given what we know about the further increases in, in, in the price cap to come. Uh, and I think this is, this is going to be one of the biggest tests for whoever the new prime minister is, which is, you know, how do you deal with this situation given how high energy prices are going to stay for how long? Thank you, James. Thank you, Elizabeth. The Tory leadership contest could have been an opportunity for the party to refresh and have a battle of ideas after over a decade in power. Instead, it's been rather vicious in points, and although Liz Truss is far ahead, the blue and blue is worrying plenty of MPs. But who is having the better campaign? To discuss, I'm joined by Isabel Oakshot and Patrick O'Flynn. Thank you for joining Spectator TV today, Patrick and Isabel. Now, Patrick, you've been uh, very vocal in your admiration for Liz Truss's campaign, suggesting that she has steamrolled Rishi Sunak. Um, do you think there's any hope for Rishi Sunak at this point, or do you believe the polls are right and it's pretty much a done deal? Well, I think it's a done deal. I should say, by the way, that I'm really was a, a Kemi Badenoch uh, aficionado before that was fashionable and I wanted her to win. But in a first choice, a forced choice between uh, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, it seemed to me uh, that she's much the best uh, choice. I think she's run a more mature campaign and Rishi's inexperience has really uh, told. I think it, it's been a very macho campaign um, from him, almost like him and uh, Dominic Raab are doing a remake of Top Gun as uh, Maverick and Goose and getting their cadets to trash talk uh, Liz. Uh, and it's gone down very badly with Tory grassroots members uh, that I speak to. And it seems to a lot of people that that kind of Rishi was in in love with the idea of winning and and isn't really collegiate about the future of the party uh, and causing collateral damage in the later stages of what's now, for him, a hopeless campaign. Crikey. (laughs) Isabel, um, you've written uh, extensively about Rishi Sunak in the past and in one article recently you said that he was one of the most intelligent and hard-working politicians you've come across. How, How do you rate his campaign so far? Well, um, I thought uh, Patrick's uh, assessment there was a little bit harsh, to say the least. I mean, if only it were a replay of Top Gun Maverick, at least it'd be a bit more glamorous, wouldn't it? And I don't think it's really fair to say that um, Sunak's campaign has been macho. I mean, I'm not quite sure uh, what Paddy's basing that on. Perhaps the early criticisms that he was mansplaining uh, and that he was continually interrupting Liz Truss. I think that the campaign team's corrected that. Uh, I was a big and have been a big actual admirer 
of Rishi Sunak. I think his, uh, he's an extremely able uh, politician. But I think where I would agree with Paddy is in the inexperience. And actually, I've been struck by the sort of naivety of the Sunak campaign. I said before all this started privately to some of those involved in the Sunak campaign, look, the only way you're going to have any hope in this is if you offer one or two really significant and totemic tax cuts right at the beginning of your campaign. That then squares off that issue. Uh, and they simply would not do that because, you know, they say Rishi genuinely doesn't believe that's the way uh, to sort of address the economic difficulties that we're facing. The problem is that once he decided not to offer any tax cuts and in, in fact actually to sort of double down and own that and say actually I'm standing on a, a tax raising agenda, he had no hope whatsoever in my view. You know, he basically uh, lost the argument before it had even begun because anyone who has been in any room with any Conservatives over the last few months know that that is basically all they're talking about, the need for tax cuts. Patrick, I was speaking recently to uh, a supporter of Liz Truss who's been working on her campaign, and they made the point that you really need to focus on the electorate in front of you. The mistake that Tory leadership hopefuls can make is to worry about the one after that, so uh, the general public in an election. Um, do you think perhaps Rishi Sunak has fallen into that trap compared to Liz Truss in the sense it feels Liz Truss's uh, plans, her policies, partly what Isabel is saying, are very focused on their membership, whereas Rishi Sunak seems to be talking to a wider audience. Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's a wider audience, but it is a different audience. And, you know, it was, he's been characterised, hasn't he, as the archetypal uh, Davos man. And he's clearly won plaudits from leader writers on The Times and The Economist and, and people uh, like that. It's certainly true the, the, the kind of wider electoral polling shows that tax cuts aren't a great priority uh, for, the, for the general public compared to, you know, four or five other more uh, urgent issues. Um, I think it shows that perhaps Rishi Sunak doesn't know the Conservative uh, membership that well, but I also think it indicates an enormous sense of complacency uh, from him, almost as if, you know, some very senior people in the Conservative Party backstage have been whispering into his ear uh, about him being the, the natural successor and, and, you know, he came to believe that. Uh, and got himself in a lot of wrong positions, not just over not offering tax cuts, but being seen to be uh, the prime instigator of the downfall of Boris Johnson, which again, you know, uh, a more seasoned advisor might have said, you know, you don't want to be uh, anywhere near that. Uh, you know, you should row in behind Boris now. You know, he. I think it went wrong for him the day Manira Mirza walked out on Boris and Rishi Sunak at a Treasury press conference said about the Keir Starmer, Jimmy Savile jibe, uh, I wouldn't have said it and yet didn't uh, address the point that Keir Starmer had been really brutally rude about Boris Johnson in the seconds before Boris hit back. So uh, from Rishi's point of view, you know, uh, Keir was elevated and Boris was relegated. And I think since then, a lot of uh, core Conservatives have had it in for him, basically. 
Isabel, what do you make of this betrayal narrative that's uh, definitely gaining some traction when it comes to Rishi Sunak? Um, this idea, uh, as, as put out by some, that you know, he ultimately betrayed Boris Johnson, and some go as far, which I don't think the evidence fully supports, to say you know, he is the reason Boris Johnson is, um, you, you know, is, is no longer Prime Minister. Do, how does that square up to the politician who you know, you've studied? So actually, I think it's a massive comms failure on the part of Rishi Sunak's otherwise very slick operation that they've allowed that narrative to build up. Um, and I think there are two things going on here. Uh, in the eye of the general electorate, which is, as we've been discussing, uh, the eye that Mr Sunak seems to be focused on, um, actually, it did him no harm whatsoever to be seen as a man of principle, uh, the one that wouldn't take any more of this and put his foot down and said, honestly, I can't go on because Boris Johnson had become a liability and there were many reasons which we don't now need to go over for the umpteenth time why Boris Johnson had to go. So on that side, to the general population, I think, uh, it's very likely that his decision looked a pretty good one. You know, his resignation letter looked like a, a man who has integrity and wasn't going to just stay in his job for the sake of it. The problem that he's got in this context is that the Tory membership, we now know a significant minority of them are still Boris supporters and Boris fans. And we know this um, almost uh, sort of numerically because of the actual surprising amount of traction uh, that Lord Crudus's strange and interesting effort to, to get him uh, back on the ballot paper or to, to change the rules for the party membership um, that has actually amassed, you know, something like 13,000, you'll probably know the figures better than I do, uh, supporters. So there was obviously a weakness there. But, but, but if he had calmed it right, uh, if he had actually presented this properly, it didn't need to build up as such a damage, damaging narrative as it has done. Do you agree with that, Patrick? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I agree now in general that, that Rishi is kind of more highly thought of than Liz Truss among the electorate at large. I think the last few polls, certainly I think the last two, perhaps YouGov and Redfield and Wilson, uh, have actually showed that, that she does much better in matchups against Keir Starmer now than he does. So he, he clearly, he began the campaign with a marginal advantage on that, partly because of uh, uh, just profile, but that's ebbed away, which really tells us a bit more about what's gone wrong with with his campaign and uh, again Liz Truss could have could have uh, responded in kind to all the jibes she could have raised his fixed penalty notice his green card his wife's non-dom uh, non status uh, and indeed the Boris betrayal narrative now she hasn't really done any of that and I think you know not necessarily that she's some kind of angelic figure but she's not been put under uh, any uh, real pressure by to. him since we reached the last two in the campaign. That's right I mean in a sense she hasn't needed to do any of that I mean once he decided he was standing on a platform of continuity and let's carry on with the highest taxes we've had for 70 years she really didn't do anything, need to do anything else other than say, I'm not going to go down that route. You know, that's it. You know, easiest campaign ever. And on that, Isabel, do you, do you think if, if we go with what the bookies currently point to, what all the polling points do, and we uh, go along with the assumption that right now it looks very likely Liz Truss will be the next prime minister, 
part of the reason they wanted to have this contest over the summer to make sure that uh, you know to go to the members was to allow for more scrutiny to really test out the two candidates. Do you think we've had that? Do you think Liz Truss has been tested in this campaign? Well, I don't think anyone's really tested until they're in the job. And this is why we build, we journalists tend to build people up and then pull them down once they actually get to their destination. Uh, I don't think that really if what you're pointing at is should Rishi Sunak pull out? Um, I, I don't subscribe to that. I think that there's a process. There's actually, fortunately for us all, not that long to go with that process now, another three weeks or whatever it is. And I think look, they've all got to stick it out. I do feel sorry for the many young people on his campaign who, by the way, aren't being paid. They're doing it for nothing. You know, a lot of young people putting in incredible hours. Uh, and yes, it's amazing experience, but they sort of have a feeling of doom about the whole thing. And we've got to carry on with this uh, charade for the next three weeks. But I don't think it would be the right thing to, to pull the plug on it. And there's no sign that he's thinking of doing that. And Patrick, is there anything that worries you about Prime Minister Truss um, from what you've seen so far? We know that uh, she's your preferred candidate of the two left. Um, but do you think in terms of media, where do you think her weak points are? Well, I, th I think she might be a little too wildly Thatcherite uh, for the Red Wall, although polling shows that, that Red Wall voters seem to prefer her uh, somewhat to Rishi Sunak. I don't think, you know, uh, what the Red Wall was offered, which won them over at the last election by Boris, uh, was a shrinking, they didn't want a shrinking of the state, you know, uh, and uh, she is going to primarily use a kind of tax cutting and therefore stand on your own two feet uh, response to the cost of living crisis, in effect challenging people to create more wealth and earn more money. Uh, we're yet to see what, what targeted support she might do for older and poorer voters. Uh, so that slightly worries, but I think she's demonstrated a toughness I didn't uh, expect uh, from her. And the key moment, I think, is not now in this walkover against Rishi Sunak, but in the earlier stages, particularly there was a point where uh, Kemi Badenoch came quite close to eclipsing her as, as the challenger of, of the right, as the dynamic challenger. Uh, and, and we had the first TV debate, I think, on Channel 4, where Liz Truss was very, very weak, uh, very wan, uh, just didn't rise to the occasion at all. And she was in great danger then. But two days later, um, I think it was probably the ITV debate on a Sunday evening. She bounced back really quite strongly. And I thought that took some guts. And since then, you know, she's done just enough every round and the final two. Uh, I just think, uh, you know, she's faced some fairly hysterical attacks from the Sunak camp, but nothing that's really felt uh, like it's going to derail her. And I think she's growing in confidence and her media performances are improving too, albeit from a relatively uh, low base. Isabel, do you think Liz Truss will make a good Prime Minister? Well, let, let's hope so. I mean, I agree with Paddy that she's got better in terms of presentation. That was always um, the single biggest weakness I thought she had. You know, very uh, sort of poor communicator. Um, I remember sitting through uh, one of her conference, her conference set piece uh, last at the last Conservative Party conference and thinking that I had never heard a more poorly presented speech and not only that the content was absolutely dire so i do hope that since then things have changed a lot look anyone can have a bad day and she's certainly doing really well in these televised debates now 
Um, so look, I really hope that she's going to be what we need. You know, otherwise it's just going to be two terms and the Tories are. Sorry, I'm sorry, two years uh, and the Tories are out. And Patrick, you made a really interesting point just then about is Liz Truss too Thatcherite for the Red Wall? Um, because I think. At this point, it would take quite a big upset, I think, for people to start thinking, uh, you know, Rishi Sunak has a chance of, of uh, beating her in the polls, like his supporters. But of course, if they were here, say so everything is to play for. Um, but in the past week, I think as it's looked to an interview she gave to the Financial Times, where she said, you know, tax cuts, no handouts, you saw her supporters try to row back a bit from that, saying there could be emergency relief in the face of soaring energy bills. Um, but then again, uh, whenever she is pressed on it, it's very clear her instincts are in reducing the tax burden and not uh, doing what she believes Rishi Sunak is doing, which is basically an imitation Gordon Brown, where you tax people and then, and then you just give them a little bit of that money back. Um, and then you also have the windfall tax. Now, there's some talk today in the papers of how that could be strengthened. And Team Liz have completely hit back at that. They do not want to have a uh, a windfall tax that brings them more money or to or toughen that up because I think it's unconservative. So do you think there is a risk that actually some of these policies which are poll well, such as the windfall tax, which Liz Truss um, and if her Chancellor is quasi Kwarteng, um are both ideologically opposed to could lead to a backlash amongst those Red Wall voters? Yeah, that's certainly a risk. I mean, you, you, you know, she's always compared to Margaret Thatcher, isn't she? Or, or is thought to compare herself to Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, you could look at the, the early Geoffrey Howe budget where he basically steamed in, cut top rate tax, uh, cuts lots of other taxes for the better off and promises this entrepreneurial revolution. Well, fortunately, uh, they had uh, a four year term uh, including the Falklands War victory, but a four-year term and, and the economy had begun to come good. Now, this trust is already in mid-term of a parliament, so going in with that kind of ideological quasi-quarteng budget, which lets big corporations off a windfall tax, would be a very hard sell unless, you know, the economy is seen to come right uh, in time for the general election. So if she goes down that route, I think she needs to deliver on other things that red vote, war voters care about, particularly uh, immigration control, particularly, uh, you know, uh, coming up with solutions to the channel dinghy crisis. I think a much tougher approach on law and order uh, too. There are other policy areas where she can win plaudits from, but it's a very risky thing for her uh, economically to to kind of jump from Boris's social democracy, if you like, to, you know, hardcore Thatcherite revival. And finally, Isabel, final question to you. Um, you obviously researched for this uh, biography of Rishi Sunak, and I think you said that you found it hard to find much to dislike. Do you think, if we look at some of the campaign areas you were referring to, is Rishi Sunak just too nice for politics? Uh, um, do you know, I thought that at the time that I was researching um, that biography of Rishi Sunak, um, I did think that. And it was almost the only thing that I could find that anyone would say that was critical about him, that he, you know, he perhaps lacked the killer instinct. Now, you know, two years is a long time. That book came out a couple of years ago. And I think we have seen that he does have the killer instinct. But a killer instinct is not very useful if your if your prey is the wrong one. Uh, and I think what we have learned is that yes, he has a killer instinct, but he's not actually targeting uh, the right the right prey. 
Um, I, what I just want to pick up finally on um, what Paddy was saying about what a shock it might be if they go full on thatch right quite quite soon on when they take over if indeed that's what's happening uh, I actually think they are going to do that um, I think that Kwasi Kwarteng is pretty hard line I think he doesn't mind whether he's popular or not um, which is a novelty uh, given the prime minister we've we've had the outgoing prime minister really does want to be popular I don't think that Mr Kwarteng if he ends up being the chancellor cares about that. I think he wants to do what he regards as the right thing for the country. And I think we're in for a pretty bumpy and exciting time, actually. Well, with that, thank you, Isabel, and thank you, Patrick. Next, let's go across the pond. Freddie Gray, The Spectator's deputy editor, writes in this week's magazine that America is quickly resembling Banana Republic, with raids on Donald Trump's Florida home and a president who's so decrepit he can't cope. Is there any way back for America? Freddie joins me now along with Matt Purple, the online editor of the Spectator's World Edition, to discuss. Freddie, let's begin this discussion with a focus on Joe Biden, the president. It used to be the case that when people suggested he was perhaps past it or senile, that this was seen as uh, an attack coming from Trump supporters. But is this now a widespread view? I think so. I think you certainly hear it much more uh, from pro-democratic commentators, uh, and I think it's just become hard to deny the reality uh, that he looks quite decrepit and that his administration seems to be struggling on a, on a large number of fronts. However, what's been quite interesting in the last week has been that you've, or last couple of weeks actually, has been that you've had quite a lot of the, the pro-democratic media in Washington DC in particular saying uh, that Biden is sort of making a bit of a comeback, that he's back in the game, that he's on a roll. And this is to do with uh, unemployment, peak employment numbers in America. Um, plus, he, he passed this Inflation Reduction Act um, and he, he's made some progress on his environmental agenda. But to me, uh, it screams a little bit of desperation. And I have a sneaking suspicion, as I put in a piece in The Spectator this week, that it might be an attempt uh, among DC insiders to persuade uh, Joe Biden that he's not a complete disaster and that actually maybe he can move aside uh, with his reputation somewhat intact in 2024. Matt, you wrote a piece for The Spectator uh, that effectively uh, Biden struggles when it comes to the machinery of government. Do, do you think that's still the case? Yeah, I, I do, at least right now. And it's a very curious thing because the biggest selling point for Biden back during the election was that he knew the machinery of government. Uh, you know, Obama might have been a charismatic force, Trump too. Uh, Biden may be a little bit less so, but he knew how to get a bunch of senators into a room and find a consensus, right? He knew uh, which elbows to grease. Uh, he knew which levers to pull. And what we're finding is he's he's genuinely struggling with that. Um, he did pass a massive infrastructure bill uh, that I suppose you can chalk up as an accomplishment. But what's really remarkable is that the public doesn't seem to know it exists, right? It, it doesn't, didn't really, they didn't feel it tangibly and palpably. It didn't really help them. And, and now he got lucky with Joe Manchin coming back to the table. Uh, he got lucky with this, this latest legislation being signed into law. But, um, and inflation has cooled off just a little bit over here. But it's nevertheless still very bad. People are very worried about the economy. And, and the Democrats, even more so than just not being sure about the machinery of government, they seem to have this myth that if they can just pass more spending, if they can just dump more money into the economy, then they can 
effectively buy people's votes, right? They can effectively uh, bring voters over to their side. That That's really all there is to politics. And the problem is that that hasn't worked. And I don't, I don't think it's going to work now. Uh, Biden looks a little bit better than he did say a month ago, but uh, there's still not a lot of polish on him at the moment. And Freddie, how are we seeing failures in terms of a lack of leadership or grip um, ultimately manifesting themselves um, across the United States? Of course, uh, there's lots of countries right now grappling with high inflation, um, but, but what, it, what is happening? Well, I mean, if you want to look at America's sort of part in the world, of course, you go back to the Afghanistan withdrawal, which, though, in many ways, the right, things to, the right thing to do and a popular thing to do in America was uh, very much botched. Uh, and then also, if you look at what happened last week with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, that was chalked up by some people as a win. You know, uh, China said you, it absolutely would not tolerate uh, Nancy Pelosi's arrival in Taiwan, uh, even threatened to shoot down her plane. Um, But she went ahead and did it and uh, was not killed. And there isn't yet uh, a war over Taiwan. However, China stepped up its military exercises, um, is obviously menacing Taiwan. uh, And we see no uh, further statement from the Biden administration. I'm not saying that they should. It just seemed an odd, uh, slightly overly symbolic provocation Um, that has actually put Taiwan in more danger, not less. So I think in world affairs, the Biden administration is looking less competent than than everybody thought it would be when he took over from Donald Trump. Matt, here in the UK, I think there is just a a growing sense that nothing is working, whether that is the passport office, um, what we're looking at in terms of water shortages. Is there a similar sense of, I, I suppose, decline in the United States right now? Yeah, I thought you were going to say nothing is working in the United States, which you'd be totally justified in thinking that, too, because we feel roughly the same way. Right. This is the problem that America faced in the 1970s, is that it felt like every possible area of life was coming apart. You know, crime was out of control. Uh, Gas lines, gas prices were up. Inflation was skyrocketing. Uh, Stagflation was on the way, as it appears to be now. Uh, And it it you know, it can be difficult to look around or to turn on the news and to see really any any good news. Um, and certainly that that's true in foreign affairs as well. I, getting back to what Freddie said before, I, I'm not sure that this was a huge blunder by Nancy Pelosi. I'm not sure that it's really going to matter in the end. The fact that that uh, she visited Taiwan, I think there was there's going to be some noise out of China, but eventually that's going to die down. What I think t- is that it speaks to another a facet of American decline, which is that we are so used to this imperial, all-powerful presidency, and it made Joe Biden look incredibly weak, right? He clearly did not support Pelosi going to Taiwan. He more or less made that clear, and yet she went anyway. That that was a pretty brazen move by a speaker on, of the House from his own party. It, it really, um, it made him look supine. And so, you know, again, you throw in a weak president into the rest of that mix, and it's no wonder most Americans think their country is absolutely going in the wrong direction. Now, Freddie, let's talk about Donald Trump. Uh, He's been in the news this week. uh, And I think, I suppose, the leading item relates to the FBI and that raid. Can you talk us through uh, what is going on there and what the potential repercussions are? Well, I think this is by any measure uh, a staggering story. it was announced when Donald Trump announced, uh, released a statement saying um, that his residence in Florida, he's in uh, New Jersey, I think at the moment, 
his residence in Florida was being raided um, by the FBI. Uh, and the briefed out reason from the FBI pretty quickly became that they were looking for uh, documents, official presidential documents that he hadn't returned or that perhaps he was hiding. Um, there's a lot of speculation that what, what they were trying to do is to catch him on the Presidential Records Act. That is to say, that uh, find that he's been in contravention of the Presidential Records Act. And if found guilty of that, it's possible, although some legal scholars say it's not actually possible, that he could be um, uh, banned from running again. And so it looks very much what, like what Donald Trump says it is, which is a uh, pretty shady... Uh, attempt to stop him running again for office or, or just a sort of fishing expedition for uh, dodgy materials on Donald Trump. And what I find quite amusing is that a lot of people uh, who sort of think this is OK say, well, it's like Al Capone. You know, uh, we don't we don't get him on the crimes he actually did, but we'll get him on some minor thing and that will be good enough. I mean, whatever you think of Donald Trump, and I'm not a, I'm not a big fan, uh, it's not really a good comparison because uh, you know, he's not a murdering gangster. Um, so I think there's this sort of element of desperation to just get Trump. And we've seen it for six years now, this attempt to get Trump. Uh, and each time you think, surely they realise it's not working, it's self-defeating, because it justifies Trump's narrative that he, the deep state is out to get him. They go and prove him right again. So I think it's a very, very odd story. Uh, I think we're going to learn a more about it as the, as the weeks go on. Uh, and it could be murky in all sorts of different ways. Because Matt, this ultimately does have the potential, were it to you know, go all the way, were Trump to be found guilty of a charge, for example, not that we are at the charge point yet, it has the potential to rule him out from uh, running for president again. Um, so, so do you think that we, are, we're already hearing you know, conspiracy claims, but do you think what electoral effect do you think this will have? I think it will only rally and motivate his base, which is going to see this as an attempt by the deep state, the Democrats, take your pick to try to rule him out from running. Um, the law that, uh, if Freddie's right, that the law that is in place about this is probably unconstitutional. The constitution lays out the criteria, whether or not you can run for president. Uh, you can't really just pass a statute that overrides that. You have to amend the constitution itself. So it's very likely that this isn't really going to be a hurdle for him. Um, although it could go all the way up to the Supreme Court, the lawsuit that ultimately ensues. Uh, but but yeah, it's going to, I, I think it's it's going to polarize everybody even further because on the other side, you have a left that is absolutely hell-bent you know, to get him on something. And Letitia James, for example, the attorney in, in New York, is going after him again, is going to talk to him this week. It's just, you know, after Robert Mueller, after Russia, after two impeachments, everything that's come down the pike, it, nothing seems to be able to stick. I mean, you've taken an extraordinarily, uh, or what should be an extraordinarily weak politician, you know, somebody who can't seem to stay out of his own way, and you've made him look like Teflon because you just can't seem to get him on everything. He just wriggles out of your grasp. So um, yeah, so far as the raid goes, I think one of two things is true here. Either Trump did take documents, like they really are onto something. The FBI knows something we don't in which case a former president is committed an extremely egregious crime and uh, you know, could potentially be charged, or the FBI has been weaponized and is trying to bring Trump down. They don't want him to run again. Uh, it, it seems like there's very little room for a middle ground in between those two options, and neither one reflects very well on America. Right? Both of them have a whiff of the banana republic about them. And yeah, it, it's definitely, it, it was not an encouraging development.
And Freddie, how, how is the race more generally to be the Republican candidate going? Is it Donald Trump's to lose? I think absolutely it is. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of buzz and excitement around Ron DeSantis, um, the governor of California. Uh, but if you look at the polls, Trump still has this enormous weight uh, of support behind him. Uh, and it would be very hard for anyone to stop that. And as the people close to Trump are now saying, if there was any doubt in his mind as to whether he'd run again, that went on Monday. Uh, I think they're seeing this uh, raid, FBI raid as, as a sort of perfect launch pad for his 2024 campaign, which suggests that it's, um, uh, a, if it's an attempt to stop Trump, it's, it's, so far it's been very self-defeating, unless, as Matt suggests, it's possible that the FBI knows something very damning that we don't. And Matt, when it comes to uh, the Democrats, uh, I, I, surely there is an increasing sense that Joe Biden will not be able to run for re-election. So, so is that the case? And, and who now looks as though the most talked of candidates are, are potentially in, in that sense? Uh, <laughs> Kamala Harris, um, who's even less popular than he is. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who was a mayor a few years ago. Um, I mean, it really is, this is the consequence of losing the midterm elections over and over again, right? Of seeding 2010 to the Republicans, 2014 to the Republicans, not making as big inroads in 2018 as you should have. You really don't have very much of a bench. And, you know, somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might excite the left, but she's probably still a little bit too inexperienced, a little bit too young. I don't think she would want to uh, run for president yet anyway. So... Yeah, you, you look at the Democratic Party and you realize that the Republican divisions and the Republican weaknesses get all the attention, uh, but the Democrats have enormous fractures as well. And just a, a bench that it's not even that it isn't really strong. It's just completely depleted. And Freddie, you wrote uh, in The Spectator for a cover piece um, a few weeks ago about effectively the, the problem facing all leaders in the West. And, and I wondered, I mean, ultimately, uh, Incumbent governments are going to have a very difficult time seeking election at the best of times. Uh, you know, even if even if personally they are respected, given all the problems on energy, uh, the financial situation. So when it comes to that uh, coming election, when we do eventually get there, do you, do you think it is really the Republicans to lose, or do you think the Democrats still stand a chance? Well, I think I mean I'm, try, I'm trying not to be uh, gloomy because it, everything is so uh, gloomy at the moment. But looking at the, you know the, the countries that you know one wants to do well in the world, uh, and those are uh, democracies um, with uh, where freedom of conscience and freedom of speech is allowed, um, they're not doing very well. And and what I found uh, quite striking about this week, particularly going back to the Trump raid, was that um, as soon as it happened. Uh, the Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, the minority House Speaker, said uh, that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, better clear his calendar because as soon as we get in after the midterms, uh, we're coming for him and we will you know, prosecute the Department of Justice and so on. And so what you're getting is a situation where American democracy is turning into a sort of tug of war between uh, ridiculous partisan factions who are only interested in prosecuting each other. And meanwhile, none of the very substantial problems that America is facing are being addressed. Uh, and I think this is a big collapse um, in American democracy. And on that cheery note, thank you, Freddie. Thank you, Matt. And finally, Christopher Howes, who edits the letter pages of The Telegraph and writes the Spectator's Portrait of the Week, says in this week's magazine that the letter pages of a newspaper give a chance to feel the pulse of the country. 
to tell us about the joys of the job and some of the stranger entries, Christopher joins me now. Christopher, thank you very much for joining us this week. In this week's magazine, you uh, talk about editing the letters page of The Telegraph. Um, to begin, can you just uh, offer viewers an example of a day in the life? Well, it's shoveling mostly. It's like being a stoker on a, a, a naval vessel during a war. But the incoming is it's not gunfire, it's um, readers' letters. And it's rather marvellous to read them all coming in. We get about 600 a day minimum. So work it out. If you spend a minute on each one, that's 10 hours a day. So we've got a team of people on our desk who read and read about. And then it's a question of just really bidding up, see which is the best one to put on the page to entertain the other readers and us. And uh, they, they go into two categories, really things on important subjects and things on unimportant subjects. And sometimes the ones on unimportant subjects are quite entertaining, really, I would say, more entertaining than stuff on the latest crisis in government. Yesterday we had a very good one from a man in Bridlington who'd um, he'd been in the Humber Maritime Lookout, uh, if that's the right title, and he was working night shifts. And every day he took in kipper sandwiches and they were so popular that he had to bring in a special store to cheer up his colleagues. But then he said a very interesting thing. He said that he retired 10 years ago and he's never had a kipper sandwich since. I think that says something about the habits of uh, the nation. And when you're having those conversations about which letters are going to make the page, you say in the piece, for example, you tend not to allow uh, the same writer of a letter to go in more than once a month. Um, do you end up having impassioned staff debates, perhaps fighting particularly for a letter? Oh, yes, fisticuffs, often as bloodshed. No, uh, we just really pool our talents and put things into a hat and then pull out the most juicy-looking... It's a two-way traffic, really, because the reader's letters inform the editor's decision of what to cover that day. I'm not saying that they decide it, but they have a contributory effect. And at the same time, the readers are following up what each other say in, in the letters page and also what the news and the comment is in the newspaper. It's marvellous, really, because people talk about newspapers having some kind of community behind them. Uh, and I think it's only on the letters page that actually that comes to life. Uh, you talk about people being limited to one letter a month. Well, that's perfectly true. But some people write every day. I'm not quite sure why they do, because they must know they're not going to get a letter in every day. But I suppose it's a good practice, isn't it? Like practicing the violin or something. My advice would be not to, not to make it too long if you want to get a letter in. I would think that two or three paragraphs is quite enough to be going on with. Well, you may have beaten me to my next question and answered it, but I wondered for those uh, who you know have been writing letters in, perhaps haven't made the cut yet, or are thinking about doing it for the first time, what do you think, from your experience, makes for a good letter? Well, it has to have a human quality, and it has to have actually something to say, not just a complaint. Generally speaking, people are on a little simmer of rage against what's going on, and that's usually what's going on in the government or what's going on in the country. So just at the moment, it's quite hot weather, and they're all complaining, naturally, about hosepipe bans. 
and uh, they're looking forward to winter when they'll be complaining about us not having any gas to heat ourselves. So uh, things come and go in a wave motion. So in a time of great national crisis, like during the MPs expenses uh, scandal, we were getting 1,000, 1,200, 1,800 letters a day, day after day. And I really think that they had an effect on the politics of the country. I'm not saying it's a good effect because the MPs' expenses scandal was a bad thing, but you can hardly blame us or the readers for wanting to comment on it. I came across a letter a few years ago, which was just three sentences. I can read it out if you want, it won't take very long. Please. It comes from somebody called Jean Mellows in Dorking, Surrey. And she says, I was interested to read about the teddy bear that accompanied a Battle of Britain pilot, as I too have a little bear with my maiden name tape sewn onto it, which I gave to my fiancé to take with him on his operations over Germany during the Second World War. He was a mosquito night fighter pilot and flew 50 ops accompanied by my bear and together they won the DFC. We were married for 50 years, but now, sadly, I just have the bear. And, I mean, that is really very well put. Short, doesn't take up much space. It made a real impact on readers and on poor old social media people were sending it to each other. And then later on, somebody went to interview the woman who wrote it. And we had a little photograph of the bear with his DFC. I mean... That is not the sort of letter you can write every day, but you only come across those by sifting through the, the great piles of ore to find the gems. It's like panning for gold. Do you think a letters page then effectively keeps a publication in touch with its readers um, in a way that would otherwise perhaps be harder to do? Well, it certainly does that, yes. And I think that's really why it needs an editor, oddly enough, because, you know, sometimes people put things online as comments underneath articles. And after reading that for a bit, it's like a sort of 2am conversation. They start talking to each other about completely irrelevant things and sometimes in a bad humour. It's like sitting in some provincial bus station listening to drunks arguing. Whereas if you present a nicely edited page, either online or in the newspaper, people enjoy reading it. It's one of the most popular things in the paper. And so they sort of up their ante and they make a bit of an effort to write a letter, nicely topped and tailed. And uh, I, I think that's what makes for a good conversation, really. Now, my first job, uh, my first, I think, paid job in journalism was at the Telegraph. Um, and I remember always walking past the letters desk um, and you all looked very, very busy and uh, as though you had the, the most important work to do. Um, I think we were polite. Oh, always polite, Christopher. Never, no one ever accused you of being anything but. Um, but I wondered, for uh, viewers, are there any memorable, I suppose, uh, surprising turns a letters page have, have uh, you know, have taken. Uh, for example, you mentioned in the piece uh, a period uh, looking at, you know, British cars. Oh, cars. Well, that took me by surprise because somebody wrote in about their Triumph Herald and it was in the beginning of the year, it was moderately quiet, but it's just that it seemed to me that people remembered 
their Triumph Heralds, mostly for, <laughs> for when they went wrong, often because the chassis was a bit sort of wonky. The doors would fly open when you went round and round about. A woman wrote in saying that she lost not only her handbag round and round about, but also her, her pet dog, and they were both, luckily, retrieved intact. And we found that cars, often a British make, uh, and not very reliable ones, sort of punctuated people's lives, their love lives, births, marriages and deaths. And somebody wrote in about their car, which um, survived when their house was destroyed by V2 during the war. And it was still going when he was writing in to us, you know, all those years later. It's astonishing. And over the years, have you seen social media have an effect on, I suppose, the quality of letters going in, or perhaps uh, meaning more people think, oh, I'll say my views on Twitter about an article and therefore I don't need to write in. Um, has no, it no, it has the opposite effect, actually, oddly enough. We get more and more. Um, and um, we don't fear a post-strike anymore. I see the post postmen going on strike again. But we won't mind, because as long as the electricity is still working, they come bobbing in by email, and people write as as if it was on a piece of paper, and they're usually pretty well written. And we only get a few dozen now actually on bits of paper, and often they've taken a long time to come, so they're a bit out of date. So there's no more green, green ink anymore, uh, because, well, I suppose you could do green ink, can't you, on an email, but it doesn't have quite the same effect. And when um, you're looking at these letters, I wondered what proportion in a day's, I suppose, uh, intake, are people complaining that the letter hasn't gone in? Or do people take it well? Do people take it well? So much they can do about it, really. Well, I think they recognise that it's a, it's a fair game. And the great thing is that we do take notice of the letters even when they're not published. And uh, often they influence um, what, what the paper's going to be doing. And sometimes we get what we call stories. In other words, uh, news reports well up from a letter and are published in the coming days. And if the government doesn't take notice of what our readers in the Daily Telegraph say in their letters which are published, then they're fools. And I hope they do, and I think they probably must. Uh, it would be very sensible. And because we're speaking, it's the end of an era. You are no longer going to be in charge of the letters <laughs> page. Um, what are you going to miss the most? Or uh, perhaps how, how are you going to distract yourself from the, from the gap in your life after this? Well, it's not the end of life for me. I'm just moving on to another job at the Telegraph. I'm going to do more writing. But I suppose I shall miss having that finger on the pulse of the readers. Um, I won't think that they're dead just because I'm not holding their wrists. But um, it's, it's something which you sort of feel part of. So I'll certainly miss that. And I'll miss the entertainment uh, because of the, they come up with things you just don't expect. That's a great thing. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you for joining us today. That's it for this week. Remember, if you enjoy what we do here at The Spectator, you can subscribe to the magazine and to our online content. Join today and you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And don't forget, while we have you here, to also subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week. Mm -hmm.